Did you know that Christians in the first centuries of the faith were accused of, of many things by Romans, their fellow citizens? They were accused by many Romans of despicable practices like incest, infanticide, and cannibalism. Did you know that? For some critics, this was simply the Roman PR machine at work to vilify Christianity by any means necessary. But others actually believed these charges. So where did such outrageous accusations come from? Well, they were inspired by pagan confusion about early Christian terminology and practices. For example, if you heard that your Christian neighbor was going to a love feast with their brothers and sisters, you might imagine that some bizarre incestuous gathering was taking place down the streets. But as we know, that Christian neighbor was simply going to a fellowship meal with the family of God. In the same way, when it was said that Christian worship involved partaking of the body and blood of Jesus, charges of cannibalism seemed justified to Roman citizens who simply heard those words. But we know, of course, that any visitor to a Christian worship gathering would find that only bread and wine were being consumed, not an actual person. And yet the language is still provocative, isn't it? Of course, we know where the language comes from. Jesus used these terms at that last supper with his disciples the evening before his crucifixion. The Apostle Paul later described this episode in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 25. Take a look at this text. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So what took place on that evening before the crucifixion of Jesus was common practice now as far away as Greece in the city of Corinth a regular, regular part of their worship. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke that bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Eating his body, drinking his blood. Why would Jesus use such scandalous language? Let's consider that question as we look together at God's Word this morning. John chapter 6. It's where we are picking up our ongoing study. We'll be studying the Gospel of John throughout this month as well. John chapter 6. We finished our last verse last time was verse 51. We're going to use that as our first verse this time. 
our launch pad into the rest of these verses in chapter 6, the remainder of the verses. So look with me, John chapter 6, verse 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you. We know that's when Jesus says, Listen up. Listen very carefully to the truth of what I'm about to tell you. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. That is the manna in the wilderness from the book of Exodus. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let's stop there. So to make sense of what Jesus is saying here, this provocative language, this scandalizing language, as you can tell by the response from those who were listening to him, to make sense of what Jesus is saying here, I think it's extremely important to point out three things. First of all, number one, Jesus is still speaking here about being the bread of life. This whole passage is about Jesus being the bread of life. You may remember that when, earlier in this chapter, the crowds came seeking more miraculously multiplied bread like they had experienced and tasted on the other side, the, the east side of the, of the sea of Galilee, when they came seeking this from Jesus, Jesus encouraged them to work, verse 27, to work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So he starts out very generically, doesn't he? The food. How could they work for such food? Verse 29. This is the work of God. This is the work that God wants you to do. That you believe in Him whom He has sent. There's not a list of commandments to follow, according to Jesus. To to do the work of God is to believe in the One that God has sent. Then in verses 32 and 33, look what happens to food. After they mention the manna described in the book of Exodus, Jesus goes on to refer to the true bread from heaven. Now he's getting more specific. The true bread from heaven. 
He's referring to the bread of God in verses 32 and 33. Finally, in verse 35, he makes this stunning declaration. The first of seven I am statements found throughout the Gospel of John. He makes this statement, verse 35. I am the bread of life. Work for that food that endures to eternal life. How do you work for that food? You believe in the one that God has sent. You need that bread from heaven. You need the bread of God. What is this bread of God? I am the bread of life, says Jesus. So don't you love how Jesus always brings the conversation back to himself? (laughs) When we read in God's word, we need to do the same thing. We need to let God always bring our focus back to Jesus as we read in his word. Jesus is doing that here. But it's important to, take, to, to, to look at the rest of verse 35. He says, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's not just talking about hunger. He's also talking about thirst here. You'll see both of those ideas present. And I think the reason he does that is he's trying to communicate this idea of complete satisfaction, complete nourishment from God. Everything that we need to live. Do you need bread to live? Yes. Do you need water to live? Yes. You need both of these things. That's the point Jesus is stressing here. So when Jesus describes himself in verse 51 as the living bread that came down from heaven, he's simply continuing this conversation about spiritual nourishment that results in eternal life. Hold on to that phrase, would you? Spiritual nourishment that results in eternal life. That's what this whole thing is about. Everything we've been looking at pretty much in this chapter. And more specifically, that He is that spiritual nourishment. But in verse 51, we also discover a second point. Take a look. Jesus explains this figurative bread as his literal flesh. Jesus explains that this figurative bread is his literal flesh. Look back to that last phrase in verse 51. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is what? My flesh. My flesh. Even though there's a lot of figurative language being thrown around here. Jesus, for example, is not literally a walking loaf of bread. (laughs) We, We know that. Even though all this figurative language is being used, this statement about his flesh should be taken literally. Jesus here is partly explaining what he means by the word bread. Now, someone might ask, so you're saying that Jesus is talking literally about eating his flesh? No, of course not. That's not that's not what I'm saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. Even though we should take the word flesh in a literal sense, I think the context here helps us see that the words eat and feed are still being used figuratively. Flesh literal, eat or feed figurative. Make sense? 
How is one nourished for eternal life? Jesus has already made that clear in verse 29. That you believe in him whom God sends. From there, belief then becomes a main emphasis. It was talked about before, but look after he talks about verse 29. Look at verse 30, verse 35, verse 36, verse 40, verse 47. It's clear the emphasis is on faith here. So throughout this chapter, this image of eating should be understood as a picture of faith. Just as your body, right? Just as eating is the body, your body receiving or consuming physical nourishment, faith is the heart or the spirit receiving or consuming spiritual nourishment rather than physical nourishment. Do you see that parallel? That's why the the imagery is used so well, so powerfully. Where does that come from? It comes from the Old Testament, Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How do you do that? With your literal mouth and tongue and choppers? No, of course not. You do that by faith. That's what Jesus is speaking about here. But why talk about his literal flesh? Why talk about his literal flesh? That brings us to a final point. Number three, third, the fact Jesus will give his flesh points us to the cross. Did you notice how in verse 51, Jesus spoke using a future tense, the bread that I will give, the bread I will give, even though Jesus was presently calling them to believe, calling them to faith. There is clearly something that still has to happen. According to this language here, Jesus has not yet, but will give his flesh for the life of the world. When you read the gospel of John as a whole, it's not difficult to see how Jesus is speaking here about his death on the cross. Four times in chapter 10, for example, he exclaims, I will lay down my life. Verse 11, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18. In chapter 12, Jesus declared, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then the Apostle John adds this note. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. John chapter 2 Sorry, John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33. So let's stop and think about this for a minute. Jesus is offering his listeners. He's offering us this morning spiritual nourishment for eternal life. What is this nourishment that saves spiritually starving sinners like us? It's Jesus himself. It's Jesus himself. Even more specifically, it's Jesus as, chapter 1, verse 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
because he stood in our place as the perfect sacrificial lamb, bearing the righteous wrath of God for our sins, his death, his broken flesh and shed blood became for us the only means of life. Listen again to verses 53 through 57 with the figurative language removed and translated in light of what we just learned. It might sound something like this. So Jesus said to them, verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you embrace in faith the bodily sacrifice of the Son of Man and receive atonement through His shed blood, you have no life in you. Whoever embraces in faith my bodily sacrifice on the cross has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my bodily sacrifice on the cross is true spiritual nourishment. Whoever trusts in my bodily sacrifice abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, And I live because of the Father. So whoever receives my sacrifice, he also will live because of me. Now the reason that sounds okay, making those radical changes like that, is because that lines up with so many other places in the Gospel of John itself. The language that's used. And it lines up with what the New Testament says about the cross of Jesus. About the sacrifice of Christ about His shed blood, about the atoning work that He did. We know we're on firm ground making sense, of course, from the context itself, the immediate context, and then seeing how it lines up with what Jesus says in other places. What incredible reassurance Jesus gives us here. What incredible reassurance Jesus provides as He directs our eyes to the work that He accomplished on our behalf. Perfect man. Perfect sacrifice. Perfect provision. Do you believe that? Perfect man. Perfect sacrifice. Perfect provision. If you believe it, do you live in light of that each day? So no, even though we're called to eat His flesh, we are not cannibals for Jesus, are we? (laughs) Even though we are called to drink His blood, we are not vampires for Jesus, are we? We are not any of those things. Christ is calling all people. That's when He says the world, for the life of the world. That's a call to all people. He is calling all people, all kinds of people, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done. He is calling us to receive the incomparable spiritual nourishment now possible because of His broken body and shed blood. Now, I think there's more we could say about feeding, quote-unquote, feeding on Jesus, flesh and blood. But first, let's talk for a moment about how people responded to these words of Christ. We already read one response, verse 52. The Jews, usually when it says the Jews, it means the Jewish leadership, some, some contingency, some group of the Jewish leadership. 
the Jews then disputed, and that makes sense because remember where it said Jesus was speaking? In the synagogue at Capernaum. He had made his way into the synagogue. Uh, the crowd had found him maybe outside, maybe had moved in. It's not clear how the, the flow of the, of the narrative unfolds here, moving Jesus from the city to the, to the synagogue. But this makes sense that the Jews now, the leadership are disputing among themselves in verse 52, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now remember in verses 41 and 42, scan back there for a minute, 41 and 42, you'll recall that there was already a failure to grasp who he was. They simply thought of him as Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph and Mary. So they failed to grasp his identity. Those who had seen his miracles had failed to grasp his power, failed to acknowledge his power. Therefore, we see here, not surprisingly, they fail to humbly seek to make sense of his words here. If you know who this guy is, if you've got an inkling of who he is, if you've got a sense of the power he's just displayed, then when he says what he's saying, you're not going to dismiss it out of hand. You're at the very least going to come humbly and say, we don't quite understand, but this sounds, it sounds strange, but wonderful. Help us understand. Help us make sense of this. That's not what's happening here. Now notice the contrast presented in the remaining verses of this chapter. We saw verse 52 and the response there of some of the Jewish leaders. Look at verses 60 through 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. This is a difficult saying. This saying is impossible, could be a translation. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, notice it wasn't just a dispassionate, conceptual wrestling. What does this mean? This is a hard saying, right? Who can listen to it? No, it's not that. They are grumbling about it. So Jesus said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And so Jesus says, verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe. Verse 65, he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, and this is probably like the Gospel of John version of, of Peter's famous confession 
at Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say that I am? This is probably the parallel right here for the Gospel of John. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. What's stunning here is that it wasn't just the religious elites who had a problem with what Jesus was saying. Verses 60 and 61 are crystal clear that many of those who had followed Jesus as disciples, they were also grumbling about this teaching, about what Jesus was saying, about his words, even asking, who can listen to this? Clearly, what Jesus was telling them about himself didn't match up with who they expected him to be. Maybe who they wanted him to be. I'm sure many of them had hoped that Jesus would also be a kind of political leader for them. But now, he was beginning to sound downright crazy the way he was talking. This is exactly why Jesus emphasizes once again the role of the Spirit in giving understanding to wayward, spiritually dull sinners like us. If they were taking offense at this talk of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, what would they think about his eventual ascension? Now remember the Gospel of John, the ascension of the Son of Man. The returning of the Son of Man to the Father includes the being lifted up on the cross. That's what's included here. To be lifted up as Jesus talked about in chapter 3 verse 14, chapter 8 verse 28, chapter 12 verse 32. What would they do with that scandalous reality of Christ crucified. As Jesus makes clear, the departure of these disaffected, disappointed disciples, their departure was not an indication that Jesus was saying or doing something wrong. He wasn't. It was an indication that such people simply had not been spiritually touched by the grace of God. Such people simply had not been affected by the Spirit of God. They had not been, verse 39, given to Jesus by the Father. But the twelve apostles stood firm. Though they may not have fully understood everything Jesus was saying, they knew from everything they had heard and everything that they had seen, they knew that Jesus Christ was 
pointing them to eternal life in a profound and powerful way. They embrace that already. They had already been fed in some sense by the bread of life, hadn't they? They had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They had sense of this nourishment that he had provided for them. And so his words don't become a stumbling block for them. They are still, in fact, the words of eternal life. Where else will they go? And the chapter closes with Jesus once again stressing that divine choice, not human discernment, not human will, was the ultimate reason for these men's faith. So, clearly this is a passage that first and foremost, brothers and sisters, friends, this is a passage that clearly first and foremost is a call to trust in Jesus Christ as the only source of true spiritual nourishment both now and forever. Amen? That's the call of this passage. We should leave this passage, each and every one of us, everyone listening to this message, should leave this passage with the same heart that Peter has, saying, where else would we go? Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's what Jesus is calling us. That's this picture of faith, the call to trust. If you have not already, if you've not already done so, embrace Christ in faith. Acknowledge your hunger before God. Disavow the tainted offerings, the poisoned morsels of human wisdom that we find all over this world. Ingest, not a word we use usually in a devotional language. But friends, ingest the truth about this perfect Savior and His perfect sacrifice. Ingest it. In a few minutes, we're going to talk to God about these things. So I want to encourage you in a few minutes to talk with Him about this, about receiving, trusting Christ in this way, acknowledging your hunger. But I believe this passage is also a powerful doorway into language and imagery we find throughout the New Testament. Wasn't Paul feeding, quote-unquote, feeding on the flesh and blood of Jesus when he declared things like this? But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Those are the words of a man who's been spiritually nourished by the flesh and blood of Jesus. That's a man who's been feeding on Jesus. Similarly, he told the Corinthians, that was Galatians 6.14. Similarly, he told the Corinthians, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said earlier, that's 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. 
not many verses earlier in chapter 1, he talked about the word of the cross being the power of God. The power of God. In these passages, Paul is explicitly walking by faith. Not simply faith in Christ in a generic sense, but faith in Christ crucified. Paul certainly believed that saving faith was a call to receive Christ crucified, but he also believed and demonstrated that sanctifying faith should be focused on Christ crucified. How is his broken body and shed blood part of your daily spiritual diet, fellow believer. Let me ask that again to you. Think very carefully about this question. How is his broken body and his shed blood part of your daily spiritual diet? Feeding, quote unquote, feeding on Christ in this way nourishes us in extremely powerful ways. Let me give you some ideas of how it does that. First of all, when we feed on Christ in this way, Christ crucified, it inspires humility, gratitude, and worship. It inspires humility, gratitude, and worship as we remember the unfathomable price that was paid for our redemption. Again, perfect man, perfect sacrifice, Perfect provision. That humility, that gratitude, and that worship are connected to the second point as well. When we feed daily on Christ crucified, what does it do? It sobers us up and we think we somehow can somehow merit God's favor. It sobers us up when we think that somehow we can merit God's favor. We were so wicked that we rejected and killed God's own son when he came into the world. And we were so helpless that it took his coming into the world and dying in flesh to save us. We are sobered from any kind of performance mindset, any kind of merit-based construct, any kind of self-salvation project, any kind of works-based righteousness. We are sobered from those things when we remember what Christ cried from the cross in John chapter 19, verse 30. It is finished. It's done. It's complete. Everything that we needed to be acceptable to God. All of it. Covered. Past, present, and future. Talk about sobering. What else, does, what else happens when we regularly feed on Christ? Eat of His flesh. Drink of His blood. By faith. Well, these regular feeding... That regular feeding issues a regular call to take up my cross daily. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. There's that third point. 
regular feeding issues, a regular call to take up my cross daily. When I am thinking and feeding, when I am embracing in faith, meditating in faith on the fact that Christ was crucified for me, the one who loved me and gave himself up for me, Galatians 2.20. When I think of Christ's cross, I'm reminded to take up my own cross or to put to death what is earthly in me, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. For those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. Finally, when we feed on Christ, point four, remember, we find that remembering his love should rouse our love. It should rouse your love. Remembering his love should rouse your love. Jesus will go on to tell his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 13. Take a look. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He's preparing them, isn't he, for what he's about to do. He's letting them know this is an expression of unrivaled love, incomparable love. It's the same love famously celebrated in chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave, not just sent into the world, he gave over as a sacrifice his son. This love should inspire and inform our love each day. I love how Paul blessed his readers along these lines. What did he say? He said, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And when you hear a blessing like that from an apostle like Paul, you want to strive for that, don't you? You want to know that love incorruptible for Jesus. You want to have that love for Jesus in that way. So there are four, four encouragements, four results of feeding on Christ regularly. Feeding by faith on Christ regularly. His shed blood, his broken, broken body and shed blood. Now, in conclusion here, it's important to point out that one of the most powerful ways to regularly feed on the bread of life is actually not a private devotional practice. It is a community practice. It is something that we all do together. The Lord's Supper or table is what Jesus gave His people is what Jesus gave our faith family so that we would regularly refocus as his people. We would turn our attention to where it needs to come back to. Remember what Paul said. He said this, take a look. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. We need to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We need, believers need to remind each, each other. That's not proclaiming the Lord's death out in the marketplace. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about within the body of Christ gathered. At that meal, we need to remind each other. 
of Christ crucified. Does that sound strange to any of us? It shouldn't after what we just saw in John 6. Where does spiritual nourishment for eternal life come from? The broken body and shed blood of Jesus. John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. Again, John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper is about John 6. The Lord's Supper points back to the same thing that Jesus was talking about here. How he will give himself on that cross. How his body will be broken. How his blood will be shed. And how it will be finished there once and for all. The call to faith. So whether together or apart, brothers and sisters, friends, let's direct our eyes to Christ crucified. It's there through him that we will be satisfied, nourished even now, even today for eternal life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Let's give thanks.